Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sport. My name is Keith Rathbone, and we're here today with Rob Ruck, who is professor of sport history at Pittsburgh University and the author of a very interesting book, Tropic of Football, The Long and Perilous Journey of Samoans to the NFL. Rob, thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Keith. Thanks for giving me the chance to talk about Samoa today. I'm wondering, before we start talking about your book, can you tell us a little bit how you got into sport history? Sure. Uh, you know, I moved to Pittsburgh in 1960, uh, the year the Pirates beat the Yankees in the World Series with a walk-off home run. So I think it might have been uh, foreordained that when I ended up in grad school, I'd study sport. I was a child of the 60s, uh, shaped by the civil rights movement, the Vietnam War, uh, in and out of college and in and out of the courts uh, because of those times. And in the 70s, when a lot of the steam and efforts to transform this country fizzled out, and I got tired of driving a cab and working at the housing authority, I wandered into grad school and was studying labor and radical history. Uh, the first book I did was a co-authored book uh, with a fairly infamous Communist Party figure, Steve Nelson, uh, who was at the front lines of struggle from the Civil War in Spain uh, to the unemployment councils in the 30s. And at that point, as I focused on what I'd write for my dissertation, I started to work on the steel industry and steel workers. But it, it really became apparent by the late 70s that the steel mills were going down and writing about the rise and the fall of unions in steel looked like an extended obituary. One day I was running in Frick Park where you can look over the Monongahela River to the historic Homestead Steelworks. The fellow I was running with, Norris Coleman, had grown up in Hermony Number no. 2, a coal mining patch about 50 minutes from Pittsburgh where African-American miners lived. Uh, Norris had played football at the University of Illinois, was now finishing his degree at Pitt. And he mentioned that he knew there was a ball club, a baseball team associated with the Homestead Steelworks called the Homestead Grays. And we both knew about Josh Gibson, or at least we thought we knew, and Cool Papa Bell. And Norris had grown up with stories from the old timers about the Negro Leagues. But that's all we knew, and that kind of surprised us. And it surprised us more when we realized that nobody had done much research or writing about the Negro Leagues. And we started to do that. Um, Norris went on to law school, became a judge, 
that became my dissertation in a book called Sandlot Seasons. And working on sport in the black community, particularly the Negro Leagues, led me down into the Caribbean because most of the Negro Leaguers would play ball there if they could during the winter. And the best Caribbean players came north to cities like Pittsburgh and Chicago and Kansas City and New York in the summer to play ball in the Negro Leagues. And I was hooked. I mean, I just was fascinated by how important sport had been to people uh, in terms of building community, in creating identity, in forging connections between people who otherwise didn't have much to do with each other. And I've spent most of the time I've had for research and writing ever since writing about sport in different parts of the world. Well, certainly community and identity uh, play a big role in uh, Tropic of Football. I, I, I do wonder how you decided to uh, pick up American Samoa as, as, a, as a topic. So maybe you can tell us a little bit how this, this project developed. Sure. You know, if you had asked me eight or nine years ago to find the Samoan Islands on a map, it would have been, it would have taken me a while. I knew almost nothing about that part of the world, except for there having been a couple of marvelous, marvelous athletes who had emerged from that part of the world and were playing in the NFL, including Troy Polamalu, then at the height of his career in Pittsburgh with the Steelers. I had finished a couple of books uh, that had taken most of the previous decade, uh, a co-author biography with Mike Weber and Maggie Patterson, my wife, about Art Rooney, the patriarch of the Steelers, and a book called Raceball that had brought together the stories of the Negro Leagues and baseball in the Caribbean. And I was done with them, and I didn't have anything I was working on, and that felt kind of strange. Uh, I've had a book or a project like that as a constant companion. And when it's not there, it's like when I can't run, I get kind of grouchy and irritable and I feel as if something is missing. At that time, I saw a application for a small grant from the World History Center uh, at the University of Pittsburgh and got it thinking I would write about football and Samoans, which I realized was what I would describe as a microculture of sporting excellence, a small group of people that punches above its weight, that produces a wildly disproportionate number of NFL and Division I players uh, on a per capita basis. And I used that grant um, to get there. That's all it paid for. And I was just by the time I left three weeks later, all in, realizing that football would be a way to understand Samoan history, to understand Samoan culture, uh, to understand football, and try to explain that primarily to an audience in the United States. Uh, I'm not so arrogant to think that I've got that much to tell Samoans about Fa'a Samoa, the way of Samoa. But I did think it was a great device to tell the story of a group of people to a larger community. And I think, um, you know, you, you very much su succeeded doing that. I'm, I'm, 
uh, ashamed to admit myself that before reading your book, I didn't know very much about uh, American Samoa. And this is kind of despite uh, being an American, but also now living in the Pacific region. (laughs) Uh, Still, um, Samoan history was something very, very alien to me. I didn't know much about it. I think what my students uh, understand about Samoa going into this book. So I, 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 I want to say to readers and to listeners, you know, this book does transcend those disciplinary boundaries, right? This isn't just a sport history. There's in many ways a colonial history, a history of masculinity, a history of migration. Um, and, and I wonder uh, how m- much you were situating the book within some of those literatures or were you just writing the story of, of, uh, of American Samoans relationship with football or how do you, how do you approach a a project like that? It's not as if I went out and read the latest work in sport history, immigration, uh, all those topics. Um, you know, I can say that how I look at history was affected by, uh, the new social history that emerged in England and France and the United States after World War II. And, and something that was central uh, to my grad education at the University of Pittsburgh, but also the emphasis on transnational history uh, that colleagues like Marcus Redeker and Michael Jimenez at Pitt emphasized in their work. Um, you know, I, I wasn't consciously trying to situate this book within any of those historiographies. Instead, I was trying to put together a story uh, based on, frankly, fairly scant resources and archival materials uh, that would somehow connect how Samoans were attracted to an American sport embraced it and became good at it. And what that said about particularly this notion of Fa'a Samoa in the way of Samoa. Uh, You know, when I first got to American Samoa, it took me 24 hours from Pittsburgh. And I woke up the next morning, kind of punch drunk, drove around that day, watched kids jogging to practice in shorts, and jerseys carrying their helmets, watched a four-hour scrimmage uh, punctuated by storms. And later that day, I'm sitting at the water's edge, and I'm trying to make sense of what I'm seeing. And I thought, this is just like the Dominican Republic, where I've spent a lot of time, except it was football, not baseball. Samoa, Samoan, not Spanish, and on the other side of the equator. And a while later, I realized that this really wasn't like the Dominican Republic, which is this incredible source of baseball talent. Uh, Yes, it's an incredible source of football talent, but the backstories, the histories were so different that that the Samoan islands were nothing like any place I'd ever studied or ever been. Um, You know, almost no history of colonization or conquest. Uh, relatively little plantation agriculture in what becomes the territory. And that Samoans were living on land that had belonged to their 
collective extended families, the Ainga, in some cases up to 3,000 years, with a relatively unbroken skein of elected leaders, uh, leaders of chiefs called Matais, high chiefs, paramount chiefs, talking chiefs, who went by this notion of Fa'a Samoa, in the way of Samoa, that meant that your allegiance was to the collective, not nearly as individualistic a culture, uh, that you submerged your needs and your wants uh, to the needs of that family, that extended group. And that frankly blew me away. I, uh, I'm glad that you used some of these words before I had to, so that I have some sense of how to pronounce them. Um, but it does, it does bring up a, you do bring up a couple of methodological issues. I'd love to touch on quickly, at least before we um, dive into the rich material in your book, which is um, one that you had to, it felt to me, at least that you had to approach this a little bit like an ethnographer I'm really embedding yourself in some ways in in the culture of American Samoa and having to learn uh, a, a lot about it in order to understand that question of why Samoans are so good or so disproportionately good at, at, at football. But then the other is, of course, um, a question of sources. And so much of your book, um, while you do use a lot of the kind of traditional sources that we as all, as historians, we all type tend to use these textual sources. You also use a lot of oral history. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about um, those particular uh, opportunities or, or difficulties in this project, both the kind of ethnographic eye you sometimes use and also um, working so much with oral histories. Sure. I have great respect for anthropologists uh, and their ability to go live in a community for a year and essentially become part of that community, particularly when it involves acquiring another language. Uh, it's just terrific and also quite intimidating. Um, you know, I, I would have to say that I'm, I'm a dilettante ethnographer. Um, you know, I would go to these places, spend as much time as I could. And I also realized that it's important to go back several times. Uh, so that you can absorb what you learned on your first visit and parse it and then go back and talk to people again and make sure that's what you were hearing, that your interpretation makes sense. Um, and one of my uh, first contacts uh, when I approached this question was Ritz Scaglione, an anthropologist who was teaching uh, at the University of Pittsburgh focusing on the South Pacific. And, you know, at every step in the way, having somebody like that, a terrifically skilled anthropologist, be my guide, was more than useful. It was critical. You know, as for sources, there just aren't that many written sources. History is kind of an imperialist discipline. We consider everything our purview whether it's literature or weather reports, economic data, demographics, documents of any source. There just aren't that many, though, that are extant for 
the territory of American Samoa, uh, or even um, the story of Samoans among the diaspora, which is a large part of this book. So what I did is I tried to find people I could talk with. Um, they in turn would lead me to other people. Um, and in most of these communities, that proved a lot easier to do uh, than you'd think. Um, before I ever got to American Samoa, I didn't know anybody. I contacted a friend, Penny Samaya, whose family was from the island, who was born in Oceanside, California, where his parents had been stationed at Camp Pendleton, and then grew up in Utica, New York, before playing football at Pitt and becoming what he is today, which is a senior associate athletic director. Penny, in turn, connected me with his uncle, who had coached Samoana High School to a football championship there. His uncle was then in North Dakota, where his wife was stationed in the military, but he connected me with some folks on the island who he knew could interpret football for me. And I emailed them, I told them uh, whose suggestion it was, and basically that was all it took. And you know, there's a reason why Robert Louis Stevian, Stevenson, when he went to Samoa in the 1890s, called Polynesians God's best, at least God's sweetest works. Uh, the amount of friendliness and cooperation and help was truly astounding, uh, probably more than I've ever found in any project. Um, so oral history and observation, uh, being able to just be at a practice or a coach's meeting, uh, to be on the sidelines during a game, to sit in the stands, uh, to watch kids work out. You learn a lot about their attitude towards the game. You learn a lot by simply talking uh, to people in communities uh, who care about football and care about sport. And I think it's a lot more fun uh, than being in an archive looking through documents. Well, I, 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 as, I'm, as a bit of an archive rat, I will defend the archive, but I, 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 um, I definitely, getting out of the archive, I think is important for historians as well. And this book is an example of the kind of work that uh, you can't do if you only stay in an archive, right? You, you, as you say, there's, there's not much extant material. So if you don't leave it. Well, I go further than that. There is no written record for much of this. I mean, there's a minimal record of um, what's going on between GIs and Samoans during World War II involving sport. But there are people you can find who can tell you about that because they were children when that was going on. I think you have to bring the two together as best you can. I certainly uh, think you've done that. Uh Moving on to talking more about about the, the specific content of your work, just so, so readers know, it um, proceeds mostly chronologically. It, it uh, moves between different sites because you use a kind of multi-site um, analysis between Samoa, uh, American Samoa, that is, uh, Hawaii, and, and California. Um, but underlying all that is a kind of million-dollar question, which you've already alluded to, which is um, 
why are Samoans so disproportionately good at football? And so I'm wondering if you can start us off just talking a little bit about that, and then we can move through some of the um, kind of major uh, themes in your book. But uh, first, we have to understand what, you know, how good, just how good are Samoans at football and why? Sure. Well, you know, there are about a million people um, who live in either the territory of American Samoa or independent Samoa, which is a 30-minute flight away. Three-quarters of them are in independent Samoa or their migrations to places, particularly New Zealand, to a lesser extent Australia. There are about a quarter of a million people uh, in the territory and in the United States who originate from American Samoa. Only about 65,000 or 70,000 in the territory, which are a set of small islands um, about 1,800 miles from New Zealand. Of that number of people, last year, year before, probably this season, there will be over 50 players of Samoan descent, either total or partial, in the National Football League. Uh, perhaps 200 in Division I football and hundreds more at lesser division and junior colleges. So when I crunch the numbers, and admittedly my math skills have been in the decline since high school, I figure that around 40, they're represented at a rate about 40 times uh, their proportion of the U.S. population. And given that Football in the United States is at such a crossroads with declining numbers of kids playing at the youth level. I suspect Polynesians, particularly Samoans, to a lesser extent uh, Tongans who've grown up in the United States and native-born Hawaiians will take um, an even greater slice of the action in the years to come. So that's my argument about their disproportionate representation now the question is i, I think it would I just not to not to interrupt i'm sorry um but you know the number would be even i think even more shocking if you think about the numbers of samoans competing in australia and new zealand too and in, in rugby uh where they also are disproportionate in the numbers <laughs> so not I think to interrupt. that's a great no i'm glad you did i mean rugby is the sport of independent samoa and their national team, Manu Samoa, is really their ambassadors to the world. Uh, but if you look at the All Blacks in New Zealand, and if you look at professional rugby in Japan, Australia, France, England, you're going to see Samoans uh, coming to the fore. There are probably more of them making a living playing rugby than there are playing American football. And I think, frankly, the reason that Samoans are so good in rugby, why they're so good in American football, um, are pretty much the same set of reasons. That it is a competitive culture uh, in which sport is played as George Orwell once wrote, war minus the shooting. Uh, it's a tough physical culture historically, very competitive. Uh, and 
among the Samoans, the identity of the warrior has always been a, a very prized and deeply embedded one. And I think it's that cultural factor that drives Samoa's, Samoan sport. Now, there's also this notion of Fa'a Samoa in the way of Samoa that, yes, you're an individual who stands on his or her own two feet, but you belong to an extended family, the Ainga. You belong to a village. You belong to a church, and it's a highly religious society. And in nine cases out of ten, you belong to a family that has and has had members of the U.S. military in it. And you take the discipline of that family, of Fa'asamoa, of the church, particularly the Mormons. And these kids grow up in cultures which, as one Samoan once said as we stood in the water of Allegri Beach, he said, you know, these boys are the quintessential teammates. They will do everything for their team. A coach told me, and more than one person said to me, you grow up being told that the name on your jersey is not just your name, but the name of your entire family, that you represent the village. You grow off island, you represent Samoa. And I think they're just incredibly powerful cultural forces which have shaped the psyche of these kids who grow up playing rugby on the beach, um, and then turn to football, uh, that just makes them inclined to embrace that game and deal with its physicality. And football really is the quintessential American team sport. Uh, and to accept that and to do everything they can, including sacrifices their bodies, and in some cases, the chance of neurological damage for that team. You know, I don't look towards uh, genetic uh, biological factors to suggest Samoan excellence in sport. Um, clearly, there are genetic differences among groups of people, but nothing that I think gives you a firm foundation to make an argument that Samoans are genetically inclined to be superior at football. Uh, some might argue with that, I guess. Well, certainly, I think, um, you know, many people's knee-jerk reaction to hearing about these disproportionate numbers um, and then just the, the, the specific look of many Samoan footballers would uh, drive people to think, okay, this is just a kind of natural gift. But one of the things your book does is, is uh, point out, um, you know, the diversity of sport within Samoa itself and, and the, the gradual development of football. I, I was really surprised to read that cricket was so popular in Samoa. Of course, we have the ashes on in Australia right now. So that's Australia's big um, uh, kind of semi-annual contest against England. And um, I, I can't say this for certain, and I, I probably want to consult one of my colleagues to know for sure, but I don't think there's any Samoans on either of these teams. Um, and when, in fact, they're very multicultural in some respects, 
but none of them are some Samoan. Um, when even when, as I as we've just discussed, you know, there's Samoans and lots of other sport in Australia, um, in New Zealand. Uh, so it, it, it's not just any sport that Samoans are playing. It's in playing really well internationally. It's these specific sports, right? Yeah, I mean, cricket came to the Samoan Islands in the late 19th century. Uh, you've got an Australian colleague, Ben Sachs, who I believe is in Perth right now who has a fascinating book coming out about cricket and Samoa uh, over the next year. I believe it'll be published. But, you know, the Samoans took cricket and made it their own game. Uh, Instead of playing at 11 to a side uh, on a pitch that might have looked like an English village, they would play hundreds to a side, uh, playing for days on end and playing it in a very traditional style where, I mean, they didn't call it cricket, they called it kirikiki. Um, Before they had a match, one village would challenge another village by sending its high-talking chief uh, to request a match, but in the process of doing so, do it in very traditional ways, uh, develop delivering a soliloquy about the history of that village uh, inviting them to come and play. Um, And after the cricket matches were over, there would be feasts. Um, That was the rage for men, women, boys, girls uh, for decades in the Samoan islands. And it was a sport that the German plantation owners, uh, then the New Zealand Uh, leaders after they evicted the Germans from Western German Samoa, and later the U.S. um, military in American Samoa tried to suppress because it interfered with production and their perception of what good uh, Protestant work ethic ought to be. But cricket persisted as the people's game, as a pastime. American football and rugby had different trajectories. In American Samoa, football was not introduced until the 1960s, and it really was a byproduct of the Cold War. In 1961, a Reader's Digest journalist wrote about American Samoa, called it America's shame in the South Seas, uh, described outhouses built built out over Pongo, Pongo Harbor, dropping feces into the water, Uh, government buildings rotting on their foundations, an island which got a couple of hundred inches of rain a year, lacking drinkable water, and a school system that denied more than 24 students a year the chance to go beyond eighth grade. And that was a Cold War embarrassment. And in reaction, the United States during the Kennedy years started pouring aid in uh, territory building. And they developed a high school system. And when they developed that high school system that made it possible for every boy and girl to get a high school education and introduced the English language, they also introduced football. And that just, um, it took off. Kids saw football as a way uh, to embrace Americanization, to feel part of the United States. And Samoans had been very patriotic, fervent patriots since World War II. Uh, 
when many took part in the war effort, uh, when American Samoa became a staging ground for the U.S. counterattack after Pearl Harbor. Uh, at first, that game was something that was simply a way for a boy to become a man, to feel good about himself. But by the 80s, these kids are beginning to get scholarships. And getting that college education mattered quite a bit. It mattered in terms of pride to your family and village and church. It also meant you had a better chance of getting a good job with island government when you returned. In a few cases, it was a chance to play professionally. And that stream has grown, merging with the stream of Samoan kids who were the children, grandchildren, great and great-great-grandchildren of Samoan migrants to Hawaii and California uh, that occurred before football took off in the territory. One of the fascinating things about the book is that you do have this kind of transnational history triangulating between uh, American Samoa, Hawaii, and Oceanside in California. And I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about how, um, how Samoan football develops differently in these different places. When I first went to American Samoa, I had no idea that most of the Samoan community was living in Hawaii and California and scattered throughout the United States. And I was never happier than when I realized that I'd have to spend time in Hawaii to be able to tell that story. And, you know, the other benefit was it meant that I could go to Hawaii, spend a couple of days, recover from the flights to Pitt, from Pittsburgh, then go to American Samoa, which is another six hours, uh, work there, take the red eye back to Honolulu and spend some time there and recover. Uh, there are two strands of migration, an early 20th century strand and another stream that occurs that's far more significant in the early 1950s. Uh, the first Samoan to play in the National Football League is Alopati Lolotai, who debuted with the Washington Redskins in right after World War II. Uh, nobody really paid any attention to the fact that there was somebody who looked a little different in a Redskins uniform in those days. Uh, Lola Tai was born in what is now independent Samoa. Uh, his father died. His mother moved to the American territory, got remarried. He died. She then took her three children to Hawaii and ended up in a town called Laie, where the Church of the Latter-day Saints of Jesus Christ, the Mormons, had been building a temple. Uh, it was the first temple the Mormons had built outside the mainland of the United States. And you had to have certain rites and baptismal ceremonies there uh, to ensure your soul would be in heaven for eternity. And they brought Polynesian converts, including Samoans there, to build it. She married a man, Ololeo, Anai, and Alopati grows up 
in La Ie is exposed to the football culture of the adjoining town, Kahuku, where he goes to school. And Kahuku is a sugar mill town, which attracted Filipinos, Japanese, Portuguese. Um, in more recent times, kids from the North Shore, uh, who are the children's surfing families, all go there. And it's an incredibly diverse an incredible football powerhouse, one of the best high school teams in the nation year after year. Well, Lola Tai plays for a private school, Iolani in Honolulu, plays in college. After the war, he breaks the ice. A couple of more guys follow. Charlie Ani, whose family was from American Samoa, who played at Punahou and then USC, uh, who twice captains the Detroit Lions in the 50s. Bob Apisa, who's born in the territory, plays for Farrington High School, the two-time All-American at Michigan State. But the real surge of Samoans who create what we know as the Polynesian pipeline are the children and grandchildren of migrants who arrived there in the 1950s. World War II transformed American Samoa. By the end of the war, most men were either in the U.S. military or working for the military, and most women were working in conjunction with the military. And it went from a area that subsisted on what it took from the ocean and grew on the hillsides to a wage labor economy, dominated by the Navy. After the war, the Navy was the biggest employer. It suddenly shut down in 1951, and the economy disappeared. To soften the blow, the Navy gave free passage to anybody in the military or working for the military and their family to Hawaii or California and gave them jobs. So something like 20 to 25% of the population would migrate in the 50s. Many of them ended up in Honolulu. And that area becomes uh, a source of some of the early Samoans who become part of what's known as the Polynesian Pipeline. First to colleges like USC, uh, Brigham Young, Utah, University of Hawaii, um, the other Samoan communities, like the one in Honolulu, can be found around military bases. Camp Pendleton in Oceanside, California, with the Marines. The Long Beach Naval Yards in L.A., Fort Lewis in the state of Washington. And it's these kids who grow up in the United States, uh, speaking Samoan to their parents, but English at school and in the communities. And kids want to fit in. And their way of fitting in is to turn to sport, like many immigrants have over the years uh, turned to sport to fit into a community. And they start to emerge in greater and greater numbers in the 70s and 80s and just explode in the 90s and in the last 20 years. So the story I'm writing and trying to tell is a story that's in the territory, in independent Samoa, but also very much in Hawaii, on the North Shore, and in Honolulu, at the University of Hawaii. 
in Oceanside and in other U.S. enclaves where Samoans clustered. I, I um, one of the kind of interesting tensions in in your work is this kind of tension between uh, the traditional and how the traditional of of Samoa, this fa, I'm going to mispronounce this. I'm sure Fa'a Samoa um, can help uh, this this cultural um, you know framework helps Samoans become good at football, but Another part of your story is this kind of um, how the modern or, or the other, the outside world um, also um, helps contribute to avenues for, for Samoan football players. And one of the most fascinating aspects of that was the, the Mormon church. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about the role uh, of Mormonism in, in Samoa uh, and also um, the role of maybe specific Mormon athletic institutions, Brigham Young notably, but not only um, in bringing over Samoan players. Um, Cause I just thought that was a fascinating part of the Samoan story that um, I had, I had not even heard about. I had no idea how religious a culture Samoans were when I arrived, but it soon became pretty evident. Uh, a very, uh, Christian culture, but there's no one Christian faith that has a majority. Uh, you have the descendants of the London Missionary Society and the Congregational Church. You have strong presence with Catholics, Evangelicals, Baptists, and Mormons. And the Mormons are under 10% of the faithful on the island. Um, where it seems as if everybody is connected to a church and the largest building in every village uh, is invariably a church. Uh, the Mormons are very well organized and both in the territory, but also in La Ie, which is a Mormon town with um, a branch of Brigham Young University uh, and the Polynesian Cultural Center uh, the vibe, I mean, in many ways, and I'm not a particularly religious person, but the vibe um, of comedy and friendship uh, and cooperation is, is really quite impressive. Um, but kids grow up in that structure, and that adds a sense of discipline and respect for elders for hierarchy. Um, and the Mormons have used sport as part of its youth activities. And that, I think, is one of the factors that uh, encourages, I think, the incredible disciplined approach of Samoans to football. Uh, you know, on the island, uh, but even in the, the Samoan-focused teams in Hawaii and California, uh, you don't have kids hot-dogging if they make a great play or score a touchdown. Uh, that just doesn't happen. Uh, you don't put yourself above the team. Now, that Samoan discipline, which I think the Mormons reinforce, uh, 
the incredible rate of military participation reinforces uh, is just connected to the discipline that boys and girls learn as kids. Uh, growing up, they've got chores. You don't talk back to older people. Uh, it makes it difficult for them to ask questions in class. Uh, even if they know something, you know, they're being told by an elder is incorrect. They might not raise it. That's part of the culture. And, and frankly, talking back often uh, will get a kid hit upside the head. Uh, and not just by his mom or dad, but his aunties and uncles, his teachers, his principal, his reverend, and his coach. Um, but I think all of those cultural factors make these kids um, great teammates and very coachable. And coaches also appreciate how much it is to have these kids at the center of a locker room in terms of creating the ethos of a team. Uh, they also play with what they say is no fey-fey, no fear. Um, you, know, you grow up playing rugby on the beach and on the village green, which is basically get the guy with the ball. Um, you are exposed to football where you're put in the bull ring and everybody's trying to come and get you, to tackle you, and you've got to block and prevent that from happening. Um, you just grow up with a certain attitude. And kids there don't cop to injuries easily. Uh, they don't cop to pain. Um, and they've got, I think, you know, a notion of masculinity and of warrior-ness uh, which often makes them extremely vulnerable because I think it's some of those same attitudes that puts them at peril. Uh, what we know about football today is that it's clear it not only damages the body, that it can leave you semi-crippled and arthritic at a young age, but that it can damage the mind, that the accumulation of subconcussive and concussive blows uh, can lead to chronic traumatic encephalopathy, uh, premature dementia, aberrant mood swings, depression, um, outbursts of violent action. And Samoans, I think, are, particularly these kids, are extremely vulnerable to that. Uh, you know, most kids growing up, most every boy or girl who plays a sport in the United States, and you can tell me if this is the case in Australia, will take what's called a baseline concussion impact test before the start of the season. So that if there's an incident in which concussion is suspected, they can measure a kid's reflexes, answers to questions, and compare it against the baseline and see whether or not the kid has been concussed and ought to be kept out of practice until his or her mental facilities and reaction times are back to what they need to be. Because you are most vulnerable uh, when you've had one concussion and then have another. The kids in Samoa don't have that. There are approximately a thousand kids who are involved in scholastic sport in the territory, and there is one certified athletic trainer 
and she cannot possibly cover all the action. Nor does she have the staff or the equipment to do so. Uh, so I, I, I think that football has been very important for Samoans uh, as a way to shout their story to the world, to tell the world who they are, um, to feel good that though they are a tiny population, um, that they've got a story that they can tell through sport about people who work hard and play harder, uh, who lose but never quit, and in the end become among the best at what they do. Uh, but there is a downside to that story. And I think a lot of these kids uh, are physically and neurologically harmed. Uh, there are also consequences for what has been happening in a larger scale uh, by the epidemiological uh, epi epidemic of um, obesity and diabetes and other factors which make me want to see more attention to how football is played, uh, attention to diet, to training, and the like. Yeah, the last chapter of your book uh, in which you talk about the kind of some what you call the Samoan paradox of the kind of extreme athleticism and the, the dangers of football are uh, really fascinating. So I want to encourage everyone out there to go pick up this book, um, check it out, especially if you want to know more about uh, the history of American Samoa, which I think is just under um, understood, not well understood, let me put it that way, um, in the United States. Uh, as, a, as a final question, I'm hoping, uh, Rob, you can tell us uh, what you're going to work on next. You mentioned you always need to have a project. So what's the next project? Well, I've got a couple of collaborations. Um, they're not about sport, although sport always factors in, uh, that I'm finishing up. And the project I'd like to work on, um, what I tentatively call Youth in the Republic of Play. I think sport at its best is just a tremendously marvelous and important part of people's lives. And what I mean by that is sport that's a level playing field where everybody's got equal access and opportunity. And it's not how much money your family has in the bank. It's about what you can do. And it's sport in which you validate who you are and your abilities by the competence of your opponent. And it, it's sport that celebrates the body and the mind. Uh, unfortunately, you know, just as the early American Republic embraced slavery alongside freedom, sport can turn kids into disposable commodities on a global supply chain and traumatize the athletes that we care about. So I'd like to write a, a book that would look at the consequences of sport in the age of global capitalism. How sport has forced kids or persuaded kids to specialize at an early age, often resulting in uh, a rash of injuries like Tommy John surgeries among kids who at the age of 15 and 16 
throwing baseballs year round, pitching as often and as hard as they can until their elbow blows out. Um, or their exposure uh, to neurological damage, uh, or to simply sucking the joy out of sport. And while that system creates high-performance athletes, it turns a lot of kids into couch potatoes. And I think that's part of why we have uh, so much obesity and alienation from sport. But part of that book is not only at sport's downside, I want to try to find the parts of the world where there are ways in which sport is organized and structured and played by youth that's healthier, uh, that encourages participation regardless of performance, uh, that makes lifelong athletes out of boys and girls, that encourages a healthful outlook in terms of diet and exercise and avoiding the sort of activities that compromise that. And I think there are parts of the world where sport is being done better, where governments are more protective of kids, uh, where communities are still more in control of sport. And I want to spend some time in those places uh, and see if I can understand them better and see whether their models are transferable to parts of the world where sport is more problematic. Uh, look at the baseball academies in the Dominican Republic, uh, where kids are forgoing education by the time they're uh, done with eighth grade and maybe signing a minor league contract, but not getting much further. Look at the academies for football in Africa. Uh, look at the problems of junior hockey. Uh, look at collegiate and AAU basketball and football uh, programs in the United States. Um, there's more to the picture and to the story than the, the bad stuff that's going on. And I want to see if I can get at that and see if those better models are transferable uh, to poor parts of the world, to poor groups of people, to bigger societies. Well, that sounds great. And I will be anxiously awaiting it. Um, thank you so much for joining me, Rob. Well, I appreciate your chance to let me ramble on, Keith, and uh, try to tell the story. Um, talk about Samoans and hopefully interest people in finding more about them and their culture. We've been here uh, on the New Books Network. This is New Books and Sports. My name is Keith Rathbone. We've been speaking with Rob Ruck, who is professor of sports history at the University of Pittsburgh. And we've been talking about his absolutely fascinating uh, new book, Tropic of Football, The Long and Perilous Journey of Samoans to the NFL. Thank you again, Rob, for, for joining me. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, have a great day.